from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Brendan Telerik. Today, we talk to OSU English professor Caritha Mitchell and discuss her book, Living with Lynching, African-American Lynching Plays, Performance, and Citizenship, 1890-1930. A native Texan, Caritha Mitchell earned her PhD at the University of Maryland and is now an associate professor of English at The Ohio State University. She's been awarded fellowships from the David Driscoll Center for the Study of the African Diaspora, the Ford Foundation, and the American Association of University Women. Her 2011 book, Living with Lynching, African-American Lynching Plays, Performance, and Citizenship, 1890-1930, focuses on pre-1930 black-authored lynching dramas. Welcome to Writer's Talk. Thank you. Well, let's start with discussing, uh, setting up some parameters. What are lynching plays? Okay. Well, in 1998, um, Judith Stevens and Kathy Perkins co-edited an anthology of plays that they called lynching plays. And basically what they say is that a, a lynching play is a drama in which the threat or occurrence of a lynching, past or present, has major impact on the dramatic action. So they argue that even though a lot of writers talk about lynching or racial violence in their plays, it's really when the lynching itself has a dramatic impact and kind of shapes the plot that they're interested in. Okay. So they collected both um, plays by black women and plays by white women. Okay, and how did you get interested in it? What led you into this field? You said it was 1998? Was in 1998 came? is when that anthology mm -hmm. came out. And actually, um, to be accurate about how I came to this, I have to go back a little in time because basically what happened is I got really interested um, in the latter years of college in what black women writers were saying between like 1870 and 1920 um, when black men received the vote because they were no longer slaves their argument was well we're no longer slaves how could you not allow us to have these manhood rights and so once they get those rights white women start saying well how can you let that ex-slave have the vote before you let your mother or your sister or your wife. And so neither group seemed to be really kind of calling on its alliance with black women to make their arguments. So I got really interested in what black women were saying. I also got interested in was there a time when black and white women really came together for political change? And that is what led me to lynching because I thought lynching was one of those things in United States history that they truly came together about. Um, I was wrong. But you were wrong. Okay. I was definitely wrong. Um, black women activists were basically begging white women to join them in the fight against lynching um, as early as the 1880s and certainly by the 1890s. It's not really until 1930 when Jesse Daniel Ames founds the Association for the Association of Southern Women for the Prevention of Lynching. Mm -hmm. um, when she founds that organization in 1930 is really when white women recognize their role in helping to end this. So it was never an interracial movement in that way. In fact, um, the ASWPL was expressly 
expressly for white women only because mm -hmm. they believe that they could make the best argument against lynching by saying this isn't done in our name. Don't claim that. This mm -hmm. isn't about right. raping white women. Um, so basically, no, they, they weren't. It wasn't an interracial movement in the way that I had hoped when I started the journey. But by then I was hooked on the plays. Um, so what happened actually is that in graduate school, um, when I told my advisor what I wanted to do, this political you know, union of black and white women and all of these kinds of issues, when she came across this anthology of both black and white women writers um, addressing lynching, that's what made her give that to me. Okay. Yeah. And then from there you focused on 13 plays, I think, for your dissertation, right? This is true. Um, and I, I very quickly got to the point where I focused on black authored plays. Uh, in the dissertation, you're right, there were 13 plays that I looked at, I believe um, 10 by women and three by men. Mm -hmm. um, that has changed for the book, but yes. Okay. And it changed for the book because you were focusing on um, black female authored plays exclusively in the book. Is that right? Or is no, that? No, no. Actually, okay. I have a chapter in the book on male authored plays, and I oh, look at right. two of them. Right. The Pimp and the... The Pimp and the Coward. The coward oh, right. yes. Um, and so, yes, I do look at men as well, but um, it was really a decision about stopping at 1930, mm -hmm. partly because the, the nature of lynching begins to change in the 1930s, um, where you have more and more examples of so-called legal lynchings, where mm -hmm. there's some kind of farce of a court you know, situation and then they're lynched. And so that kind of changes the cultural work I think that lynching was doing. And so I decided that it would be better to stop where the nature of the violence that I'm looking at remains relatively the same. Okay. Did that change the nature of the violence in that era? Did it change the natures of the play then? Is that what is that part of the argument that, that you're seeing there to create that that delineated time in which you say 1890 to 1930. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, everybody has to have a stopping point, mm -hmm. you know, in for something. So there's reasons. always, for practical reasons, or you'd be going on. Mm -hmm. Because I was fascinated to learn that they're still being written. Mm -hmm. and, and we can talk about that. But that's what you saw as there's a, a, a transformative moment or something that happens in the 1930s, and is that then reflected in the plays? I think so, and I think too, part of what happens is more of a concern for addressing an interracial audience. When you start having these, you know, kind of courtroom situations come into the, the, the game, I think there becomes more of a concern to address an interracial audience. And what I found with these plays was a real um, concern with affirming each other. Um, you know, writing these plays as one acts so that they can be in publications like Crisis, um, which is the NAACP's official organ, or Opportunity, which is the uh, Urban League's official organ. Those kinds of publications, I believe, were really a way for these writers to tap into and target black audiences. Okay. Not that those you know, periodicals were only read by blacks, but I do mm -hmm. think it's a move to target black audiences and just kind of affirm them. Okay, and, and that seems to be a large part of the argument in the book is that you're saying that these were created to affirm the family, to affirm um, the idea of the African-American race as being um, worthy mm -hmm. in, in ways that uh, they were not seeing anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought that was really a, a, a powerful 
kind of interest that you had there. Yes, and worthy of citizenship specifically, right? Mm -hmm. um, that, that, that the nation is saying, well, there are certain ways that you can show that you're ready for full citizenship. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that you can show that is be a responsible family man. And it's like, oh, when you have black examples of that, those are exactly the people who, who get targeted. Um, not only because they're trying to be protective of their wives um, and children, but also because maybe they've accumulated a little bit of land mm -hmm. that whites would rather take from them. So this idea of you know suggesting that lynching is just to protect society from these you know black rapists who you know will terrorize white women from these black whores who can't you know keep their men under check because they can't make a, d a decent home. Mm -hmm. The argument is that's why lynching has to happen, but in fact, the plays are showing us that it's exactly the examples of people who fit the mold of what you say a citizen should be. Those are the ones who are targeted. Okay. Now, and as you said, a lot of these were published in journals, and I was I read a, a couple of interesting things about it in the book. One is that there is also this strong sense of they would like to be paid. The authors would like to be paid, and they weren't being paid for the, the times when the plays were being produced, um, say, in churches or in other places like that. And they didn't get the, uh, I think it was uh, Dubois? Is it? Du 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 I, I pronounce it Dubois, du Bois, but sorry. yes. Um, so he's writing and saying, you should pay. And there's a really interesting comment between the two, uh, between him and, I think, a playwright. Yes. And, which he, the, he, the playwright pays him for using one of his plays, but he doesn't play pay back or something along those lines. Yes. So. I mean, it's really interesting to see how that developed. And yes. tell me about your research into that when it was a, becomes a, this economic issue that people are just taking things and not paying for it, it which to me, funnily enough, mirrored music, mm -hmm. right? It was, it was this moment, okay, these are out here, we can do whatever we want with them mm -hmm. in the same way that music has been taken over technologically and, you know, okay, we'll do whatever we want with it. And there are, big, there are entities <laughs> saying, oh, no, you won't do that. So Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that you would pick up on that issue. Um, I, you know, that was actually one of the fun moments of archival research for me, um, coming across that exchange, right? Mm -hmm. Because what I find interesting about it, though, ultimately, is that, you know, I'm saying that these plays are used by communities. They're part of a community conversation. And so when you publish something in crisis, if it's an essay, you expect that it will incite debate whether it's in the barbershop or at church or wherever people are using that text. And so I actually believe that Du Bois's labeling this some kind of stealing of the text is actually not accurate in terms of how these um, magazines were used. He wanted Crisis Magazine to be handed from person to person in a barbershop, but now all of a sudden you want a royalty. So I actually think that the community is pushing back against Du Bois's characterization of that. Um, but at the same time, you're right, there are you know real reasons why Willis Richardson should feel, he's the playwright who's mm -hmm. writing Du Bois, there are real reasons why he should feel that he should get a royalty. Um, so it's a real moment of Attention, I think, but it was a fun archival moment because Du Bois wrote this, um, you know, piece in Crisis saying that that we need to pay playwrights as long as you give Crisis half the royalty. Right, half they get. A two, <laughs> they get two dollars fifty cents. The yes. playwright gets two dollars fifty cents. Exactly. So, and then, so when Willis Richardson <laughs> challenges him on that, he says, "Well, the playwright should get money whether Crisis gets money or not." Um, but I just thought it was it was a wonderful moment to find him writing 
putting that in crisis and then find this backstory um, where there's actually an argument between him and a playwright on this issue. Now, with a PhD in English, right, um, you go into this then having to become sort of a historian. Mm -hmm. uh, well, not sort of, but obviously a historian. <laughs> but a lot of times uh, that's a training that you don't necessarily get. Mm -hmm. um, tell me about walking into that or where the, the help or the education you got to start going into the archives and saying, this is how I'm going to do that. This is how a historian does it. Mm -hmm. And... Um, because those are some interesting boundaries between disciplines mm -hmm. because the historians will say, well, it should be done this way and the English department people will say it should be done in a different way. Uh, how was that experience for you? That's such a great question. Um, I certainly don't claim to be a historian. I would claim the label literary historian, however, um, but I will say that you're right. There is a certain um, feeling that you get. Um, for me, it was a feeling of, wow, I really respect what historians do even more because when I came across certain letters, I felt particularly invasive. Like I felt like I was really invading someone's privacy. And I thought, well, there are so many powerful that's biographies. Yeah, that's what historians exactly. love to do. Let's there are so go many powerful <laughs> biographies we wouldn't have if someone had the reaction and couldn't get over it that I had. So it just kind of made me respect historians even more, I'd say. What really surprised you? You mentioned that's a, a nice moment that you have with uh, Du Bois. What are some of the other moments that really surprised you as you were doing research for this book? You mentioned another one at the beginning where you said, I thought I would see this as an integrated mov movement, but it wasn't. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. what are some other things that... Uh, yes, actually the most striking um, surprise for me that has completely, completely changed my whole view of this and has, you know, guided the argument of the book um, was to discover uh, an 1892 diary entry in which Ida B. Wells, who became the foremost anti-lynching crusader in our nation's history, a diary entry in which she basically said that she thought lynching might be justified. Mm. And so when that changed everything for me because basically what she said is up until this point I thought it might be justified but now that my close friends have been lynched I see what lynching really is and that was a powerful moment that has really shaped my understanding of lynching and these plays. Has that been reported previously or is this something that you It was sort of definitely found? something that I don't think it was something that was hidden I mean I think that the you know, some of the other um, biographies and histories that I was relying on had also tapped into that. Mm -hmm. um, her diaries uh, were published and had been for a while. So, yeah, it wasn't a hidden thing. Um, okay. But for me, it was definitely a revelation. Well, it, it sounds like a surprising moment mm -hmm. um, because she was so well known for that mm -hmm. after that. You're listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University with OSU English professor Caritha Mitchell. For more information about Caritha, or more about her book, Living with Lynching, African-American Lynching Plays, Performance, and Citizenship, 1890-1930, visit us at writerstalk.org. Now, back to more with Caritha Mitchell. I was also surprised to read that lynching plays are still being written. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Where are they being written? How are they being performed? 
Well, okay. Again, if we're using the definition that Judith Stevens and Kathy Perkins give us, right, that basically a lynching, whether it's past or present, has major impact on the dramatic action, then there are lots of plays that fall under that category. I would say that some of the authors who, you know, very much see themselves writing in the tradition um, would be uh, this woman named Michonne Boston, I believe, um, she published a play in that anthology, Strange Fruit, in 1998. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually believe that I saw it staged when I was a graduate student, but I can't exactly, I can't exactly remember if I saw it staged or if I just thought I saw it staged after I read it's it. Pre-internet, but you know, you <laughs> something. Can't, can't go back. I'm almost sure that I saw it staged. Um, and actually, um, an even more recent one, I went to see at the Indianapolis, no, the Indiana Repertory Theater. Um, I believe I went to see it in March, and it was called The Gospel According to James. And it was telling us the story again about James Cameron, who survived a lynching and then later went on to found the Black Holocaust Museum in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. So that play is really powerful because it tries to go back and give you not only James Cameron's view of what happened that day that he survived, but also Mary Ball, who is the white woman the only white woman who was around that night that everything happened. Mm -hmm. So that's a wonderful play that really has us think about what does history tell us? What are the facts? Um, what is interpretation? Is everything interpretation? And that play really makes you struggle with that. The playwright in that case is Charles Smith. Okay. You describe yourself as, quote, equally interested in examining the impact that racial violence has had on artists who work in forms other than drama. Mm -hmm. So we've been talking about drama and this book is about that. Tell me about some of those other artistic forms. Mm -hmm. What are you also interested in? Well, you know, again, I really believe that mob violence and lynching have had a profound impact on the American imagination. And so you're going to find renditions of it in any kind of art form. Um, one of the, the texts that really has touched me is a book called Your Blues Ain't Like Mine by B.B. Moore Campbell, who is actually a really popular author. Um, she's someone who, you know, a lot of um, book clubs, especially black book clubs, read. And she has a lot of what some people call sister girl fiction, um, where it's romance and it's this and that. And it's one of her um, it's one of her books that really tries to take up a historical topic in a more deliberate way. And I find it really striking because what she basically does is reimagine the life of Mamie Bradley, um, Mamie Till Bradley, the mother of Emmett Till, who was killed in 1955 for supposedly flirting with a white woman. And so she imagines what this this mother's life would have been after this happened. And she imagines a whole life for her that includes a sex life. Um, you know, something that you're not used to thinking about in relationship to Mamie Bradley. It seems like that might cause controversy. Um, that that might cause problems, because especially as you said, you know, I, uh, trying to create a fictionalized mm -hmm. version of that. Did, was it a controversial that came out? Um, I don't really know, okay. and I guess I'm less interested in whether some people were, you know, bothered by it, mm -hmm. because what I find so 
profound and humanizing about it is the fact that she did that. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's very humanizing that this woman had a very public life. She never again could just be a woman. She was forever the mother of this murdered child who meant so much to so many people um, whose death represented so much to the world about Mm -hmm. American history. And so to, to think about her as a human being with a life, including a sex life, I thought was really humanizing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I'm less interested in whether some people were bothered. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> because I, I guess what I'm interested in there is it, it, it seems like you've got somebody who's, um, I think, really well respected in the community. And she did things like um, Emmett Till was shown in his casket because she wanted to show the wounds. Absolutely. And so that becomes a really powerful moment. And a powerful moment attached to a person also often puts them you know, sort of on a pedestal. And so Absolutely. to humanize them runs the risk of creating problems. It reminds me of the play, um, I think it's Samuel L. Jackson, and is it Angela Bassett right now on, oh, um, yeah, on, Broadway, on Broadway, where they reimagine the last days, uh, the last night of uh, Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's also something like you're, you're taking this figure and saying, yeah. we're going to humanize it. And then I guess, I don't know, then no one's, I haven't heard the ending of the play, but it goes, I guess, into magical realism oh, or something. Okay. I'm not really sure I what happens. I haven't heard a lot about it yet. Yeah, I'm not yeah. sure what happens, and I don't have the money to go to New York <laughs> to see it at the moment. Yeah. So yeah. tell me about where you did the research. Where do you go to? You, you've you got the anthology in 1998, but did you have to go to some archives, you said? Mm-hmm. And where are the archives? Mm-hmm. Oh, the most important repositories for me would certainly be, number one, um, the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, which is part of the New York Public Library System. Um, that actually is where I found that exchange between Willis Richardson and Du Bois. Um, so that was a really important repository. And actually, there were lots of items that I found there related to black theater more generally that mm-hmm. didn't make it into the book that hopefully will, you know, spawn other projects. (laughs) Exactly. Um, But the other repository that was really important would be the Moreland Spingarn Research Center at Howard University. Howard University in Washington, D.C. is actually the site of the first black drama department in the United States. Um, It was founded by Elaine Locke and Montgomery Gregory while they were professors there. And um, as you probably also noticed from the the study, Washington, D.C. is really pivotal. Most of these playwrights live in or near Washington, D.C. when they write about lynching. Um, So Howard University ends up being really important for that reason, and their Moreland Spingarn Research Center is as well. Um, Another place that's been important for the work is the Marble Center at Emory University, which stands for, I believe, Manuscripts and Rare Books Library at the Woodruff Library at Emory. And so that's another place that was important for um, actually a play that I didn't write about in the book, but elsewhere. Okay. Let's go to your writing. Okay. Since we've been talking about this book, I read online at sistermentors.org that you experienced writer's block with your dissertation. Six months of um, (laughs) slowdown. Tell me about overcoming this. What sort of suggestions do you have? How did you do it? I think part of it was working with the sister mentors. 
Absolutely. Um, I'm a big believer in community. Um, and I also believe that you have to pull into you the resources that you need. So understanding that you need community means that you take the initiative to get that community in your life. Um, and so, yes, that was crucial for me finding them. But since then, I would say, you know, kind of that experience of working with them and, you know, the six years that I've been a professor, um, I would say the biggest thing I've learned is the importance of writing every day. I don't think there's much that can beat that. Okay. <laughs> um, because if you write every day, no matter if you end up with something that you're really pleased with or something that you're not so pleased with, um, you, you've kept a certain kind of momentum. But I've also learned the importance of counting reading um, as writing, especially when I take the time to write notes in response to what I'm reading and try to think about how it's connected to the writing project that I want to be making progress on. <laughs> so those have been crucial. Okay. So uh, does that mean that you're sort of a regimented writer? You say, I'm going to get up in the morning and do my uh, my calisthenics, my intellectual calisthenics, what is that for you? Or is it you just have to some point during the day get half an hour away to go write? What, what is your, your plan for that? In all honesty, it has to change. Um, in other words, my ideal is writing first thing in the morning, two-hour blocks. Um, period. Like, that is my ideal situation. Okay. Um, but I found that sometimes, I always talk about the importance of balance in one's life. Um, and this ends up being important for me even in terms of actual calisthenics, actual exercise, okay? Um, and so I have certain ideals in my head about having a life that includes not only reading and writing, but also some serious exercise. Um, that to me would be balance as well as having fun and family time and all of those kinds of things. And what I've now learned is that sometimes balance means, okay, within this six month period, I had balance. It was a little more leaning toward the reading and writing in this three month period. It was a little more toward, you know, the physical and the social here, but as a six month period, it represents balance. I've gotten to be a lot more flexible with myself about what balance is. So the ideal is to two hours at the beginning of my day. Um, but if I have to change that in some kind of way, I do that. But as you said, as much as I can make it a daily habit, I do. Okay. You've got a blog called Corey's Commentary, and you take on topics from, quote, Tyler Perry's for colored girls, not the disaster predicted, to, quote, why I love awkward black girl, mm -hmm. uh, to, quote, the American way mediocrity when white looks like merit. Mm -hmm. Tell me about writing for your blog versus writing sort of academic things. Obviously, the topics are, are different. Mm -hmm. Although I think at the top you, you say this is not about current events. Mm -hmm. There's plenty about that elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So what's, how is the blog a different kind of writing for you? And does it fall into that two hours? No. Okay. No, so. no. Um, the blog has been important because it actually is a big part of my claiming the label writer for myself. To, to claim that title is actually a really big deal for me because I feel like I struggle with writing. It takes a lot of work. And so um, doing the blog, deciding to commit to doing the blog was about being able to embrace that title for myself and therefore embrace the fact that I can write in different kinds of ways. So the blog for me is about challenging myself to be brief. 
Okay. Right. In a way that I didn't have to be in the book, in a way that I don't have to be for some of my scholarly journal, jur scholarly journal articles. Okay. Um, this makes me brief. Okay. So it's, but it's, it's genre exploration as well. I mean, um, not just brief, but you're writing for, I would think, a different audience um, for here, and you would, you can do different things. Mm -hmm. Is that part of it as well? Because going online, your potential audience is. Um, no offense to academic books, <laughs> potentially much larger mm -hmm. than you might get out of a monograph. Mm -hmm. So is that is something that enters into the writing when you do it, or is because who's your audience when you're doing it mm -hmm. online? Well, the fact that you're posing this question to me makes me realize one of the, I guess, stakes I have in starting the blog was that I wanted to remind myself that people do care about the kinds of things that I care about. So what I think unifies everything that I've done on the blog and in my professional work, it's really this belief that reading critically is important and that um, we sometimes need to model um, critical thinking and critical reading for other people. And so it's my attempt to model that, right? And so especially as a performance study scholar, um, you know, there is plenty to be read that isn't in a book, right? There's, there's movie text, there's one's performance right here between me and you. What kind of you know message am I sending with certain kinds of gestures, facial expressions, tones of voice? And so those things can be read critically as well. And so I guess I see the blog as an extension of my professional work in that I'm trying to model that kind of critical reading practice. Mm -hmm. and one of the things I thought was interesting is when you talk about um, Awkward Black Girl, that's a, like a, a series of YouTube uh, videos that, the, that you're critiquing and saying why I like it, here's the things that I think are powerful about it. And there's also, um, it's being funded through donations, I think, mm -hmm. 44,000 is the, the number that you... At that point, at yes. That point, now you know, they've made a lot more. Okay, because I was uh, you know, sort of struck by, would you be able to uh, do something like that in an act? academic setting. You know, there are certain places you can, but can you get away with that in the English department? Or do you have to go to, like you said, performance studies or somewhere else where they say, look, um, blogs are legitimate, YouTube is legitimate, mm -hmm. um, that kind of stuff really seems to be an interesting comment on academics, the state of academics, um, and being located, as we said earlier, within particular disciplines. Mm. You know, there are things like history. Um, YouTube is going to have to be around for another 20 years before <laughs> history is going to say anything about it, okay. I think. Okay. I'll go on limb and say that I doubt anything's been published on that yet. <laughs> but at any rate, I, I thank you very much, uh, Caritha Mitchell, for being here on Writer's Talk. Thank you. It's sure. been a pleasure. Great. And again, the book is Living with Lynching, and I think it uh, is out already and yes. available. So you can, everybody can get that. And from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Doug Dangler for Writer's Talk. Keep writing. You've been listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. Special thanks to our guest, OSU English professor Caritha Mitchell. For more information about our guests, visit us at writerstalk.org. Until then, this is Brendan Talaric saying, keep writing. <laughs>